This is an ABC podcast. One of Australia's rarest environments is now mostly sandwiched on roadsides. Um, someone's had a car accident over there and there's critically endangered plants flowering in the middle of their tyre tracks. Um, ah! and that's kind of one of the amazing things about these plants. Hello, I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track, the show where we take a walk in grasslands. Okay, someone's done a bit of a wheelie near the intersection of some description. Joshua Hodges is just wrapping up his PhD at Charles Sturt University. He's also a firefighter and an SES volunteer. Yeah, so it looks like someone's come off the road further up there and had a bit of an accident. And he's a fire ecologist. Um, so there's some remnants of agriculture here. So this is trifolium. Um, uh, so that's like... Um, clover? And a lover of grasslands. Um, and then there's Chrysocephalum apiculatum over there. Which is... Grassy. It's a uh, uh, everlasting. Oh, the everlasting, everlasting one. Yeah. Oh, wait a second. I'm just like walking over, and I'm probably treading on an endangered plant. Oh uh, well, I mean this ecosystem's critically endangered, so technically all of these are listed species. Oh, so yeah. I'm going to feel guilty all day. <laughs> well, they survived a car accident. <laughs> <laughs> we all. I think, have a tendency to think of endangered and rare places as being far off. But not these places, not the temperate grasslands that are the subject of passion for Joshua. In fact, if you live in a city in the southeast part of Australia, you probably live right near one. So we're standing at Illibarook, uh, which is a little town in western Victoria. So this is the old Illibarook railway station doesn't look like a railway station anymore, but basically this was the old Colac Ballarat line. And now it's one of the highest quality natural temperate grassland, grassy woodland reserves left in Victoria. One thing that I think is really odd about these grasslands is when you find them in the middle of a city. So one of the sites that I sampled as part of my PhD was Guilfoyle Street grasslands in Canberra. So I was sampling and I looked up and I could see the Prime Minister's residence across the road. Oh, I thought it was a Murnong, but it isn't. It's just <laughs> <a> flat weed. <laughs> Murnong has a flower that looks like a dandelion, but it's not a weed. In fact, it's a wonderful native plant that has a little tuber underneath that can be eaten. Yeah, it would be great to see Murnongs. Um, I've got some. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Very excited when I found them. Yeah, it's always a bit of a, you know, I feel like, you know, people who find rare insects and get really excited... Whenever I see a Murnong, I'm like, oh my God, there's a Murnong here. <laughs> like, I feel just shocked. Yeah. How is this different than just a sheep paddock? Well, that is a very good question. So temperate grasslands are functionally different in that they've got a dominant grass, but they're made up of a high diversity of wildflowers. You can see Drosera, Milkmaid, Chocolate Lilies over there, Chrysocephalum, Juncus. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of species here that aren't grasses. And if you compare that to, to a sheep paddock, um, which is, well, we're looking at a paddock right here next to us, it's mostly just monoculture, one species that's being grazed or cultivated. How much of this temperate grassland would ha there have been pre-colonisation? Well, it's a bit of a contested topic. So we know that these ecosystems are maintained by indigenous burning. So they require fire to maintain diversity or some form of disturbance. 
So we expect them to be, have been pretty common pre-colonisation. There's settlers who wrote in their diaries about fields of yellow, talking about the Murnong, and kangaroo grass up to their saddles on their horses for miles. Um, so they were very, very common. But now we think that there's less than 1% of them left now. So. And so this whole ecosystem is classified as endangered? Uh, it's critically endangered. As critically endangered. So what, do, what does that mean? Uh, it means there's very little of, it, little of it left and it's declining very quickly. I think there's been an estimate that about 40% of diversity in grasslands has declined since the 80s, uh, mostly the wildflower diversity. So that means that the broad acreage of these grasslands has dropped. But on top of that, the species that should be found in what's left have also gone. It's shrinking on all fronts. So this here is a little little bog rush. Um, I first saw it, but I first sampled this in 2018. This was one of the first little species I noticed. And it's a, I don't, know, I just think it looks really cool. A little lime green sitting in the landscape. It is lime green, but the little um, are they the seed heads? What are they? I think they're just little flowers. Little flowers yeah. are like brown, but it sort of has a softer look than many of the plants, which sort of have a harder leaf look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how was it that you got interested in grass and grasslands? I got interested in it sort of accidentally, so uh, unbeknownst to me, I actually grew up in a town with uh, <laughs> high quality native grassland and walked through it many times as a child and, you know, loved the plants, of course, but then I went to university and I was in a lecture with John Morgan and, ah. <laughs> and he was talking about fire and grasslands and something just sort of clicked with me and I'm like, yep, this is what I want to do. I reacted like that because John Morgan is one of the doyens of temperate grassland ecology. The rest is history, as they say. And Joshua ended up going all the way through to PhD level, spending years with grasses and forbs. So basically what I was trying to prove is that fire plays an integral role in the germination of these species. So we know that fire maintains diversity, but it's typically thought when you burn, they come up from buds and tumours. I didn't really think that was true because I've seen seedlings before. Um, so I was like, okay, so fire clearly has a role in the germination of these species. And it was typically thought that germination events of these species is fairly rare and mostly happens through a reduction of biomass and the creation of gaps. I suspected that it was also related to fire cues um, because a lot of people think you can graze and mow them and have the same effect and increase germination. But I. Because of the reduction in forbs since the exclusion of fire, I felt that fire was probably more important for their germination than we thought. So you can see this has been burnt not that long ago. How can you tell? Uh, all the gaps. So it's very, so you can think about all the rain we've had and if you look over on the other side, mm. the is up at about here. Uh. This was all the way down here. <laughs> so they've burnt this. Um, so the brigade, the fire brigade is just over here. So they, I think they get involved in burning it every few years. How do you test the hypothesis that fire or fire cues is going to help increase recruitment in grassland? So I did it through a few experiments looking at germination. One was a lab experiment. So I took seeds of many of these species that we can see here, milkmaids and chocolate lilies and many of the others, 
and I soaked them in either smoke water or I put them in the oven and heated them to mimic the heating effect of a fire. So I did smoke alone, heat alone and smoke and heat combined and tried to understand how that affects germinations. Uh, so we found that of the 55 species that we tested, 44 of them had some sort of germination response to fire cues, whether it was an increase in the number of seedlings, how fast they appeared. There were a couple of species that had negative responses, but there was only two out of the 55, so it was a minority. Most of them either germinated faster or more, um, which tells me that heat and smoke plays a really important part in the germination of these species. And if you mow it or graze it to reduce biomass, you're not gonna get that germination, which, uh, this is a bit of speculation on my part, of course, but I think that's part of the reason we're seeing Forbes decline is because we're not giving them the physiochemical conditions required to recruit, which is through burning. The next stage of the experiment was to move from the lab to the great outdoors. So it was mostly with ACT parks in Canberra. So they have these beautiful grasslands right in the middle of the city, near the lodge, the Prime Minister's resident, all over the place. So amazing, amazing sites. And so what I do is I collected seed of six species, not just me, various community members did. Um, we sowed it and we just dug up a bit of the soil and sowed it a couple of millimetres below. And then ACT Parks came through and burnt it for us. And then basically I just tracked what came out of the soil. Um, so I had burnt sites, unburnt sites, and then sites where I just removed the biomass with scissors, um, which was quite a chore. <laughs> basically that... <laughs> it's funny how many people laugh when I say that, but I actually did. And um, basically that was to say, okay, we're removing the biomass because of course, what's thought is that the removal of biomass is the important part. Um, we also worked with indigenous group and community groups up at Gobor near Yaroa, so they did a site for us as well, the Burge Family Reserve. So we did the same thing there with six species sowing them. And what we found, uh, the results were a bit conflicted because it was so dry in 2019 when we did this, but basically we found that we had very little germination in the unburnt or snipped plots, and we got quite a bit of germination in the burnt plots for most of the species. So. To me, that's a fair indication that fire is increasing the germination of these species. What it's telling me is that fire is clearly increasing recruitment. More seedlings means more individuals, means more chances of survival. Mm. That's the way I think about it. Um, and in tiny little remnants like these, you can imagine how important that is to have lots of individuals to increase your chance of survival. So with that, though, what could be the management outcomes of research like yours? Well, what I'd like to see as a management outcome, and I've just published a paper on this, is the burning being used more as a, as a management tool for these grasslands. So um, not necessarily just locking them up or leaving them or grazing them or mowing them as a lot of you know agencies do, but burning them more frequently and not just burning them once, burning them regularly. Um, and the other part of that is part of my field experiments, we were sowing seed. So we need to start sowing seed as well. We can't just sort of burn and expect species to appear. We need to be sowing seed into the soil to get species back. One of the things that I, I think can be hard to understand is the reintroduction of fire to a landscape. Because like you've just described, these remnants are often sandwiched between housing developments, perhaps other assets that people feel are extremely valuable, like their, their farmland, road infrastructure, power infrastructure, etc. So 
yeah, how do you see that rolling out? So I'll take off my ecologist hat and put on my firefighter's hat. Um, <laughs> So I'm also a volunteer firefighter. So I think the great thing about these is that they are so close to those things. One of the things that I think is really cool is when you're working with firefighters, they're very focused on obviously reducing risk. When you're working with ecologists, they want to burn to maintain diversity. To me, the net outcome is the same. You're still burning an ecosystem. You're getting both, you're getting germination and you're getting a reduction in fuels. So to me, there's a great opportunity to mesh those two together, especially because you're so close to things. Um, people can understand, even if they're not necessarily on board with the ecological values, they can understand we're burning this patch of grass close to your house, close to your town hall, close to your fire brigade um, to prevent fast moving grass fires from affecting them. Yeah, and there's that third um, aspect of this relationship which is the potential for the reintroduction of cultural burn into these um, landscapes which is really cool to think about that there could be in the future this beautiful like sort of like handshake between all three of those you know like those silly pictures you see where they've all got their hands all joined together <laughs> and that's the third aspect that i'm really passionate about which is this is not just an ecological or a risk reduction problem this is a social thing as well so um, indigenous burning is a massive part of that, getting um, indigenous First Nations people back onto country burning. Um, that's a great healing thing for them. Um, it's a great opportunity for them to get out with their families and their people and burn. Um, it's a great opportunity to reintroduce fire to these ecosystems, get the ecological values and reduce risk. Um, so there was an example of that in New South Wales with the Bega fires. So they had done a cultural burn there and it was the only area of Bega that wasn't affected by those fires. So. There's clearly a risk reduction benefit there. And I think too, just also on that, it's not just not just about First Nations people as well. It's a chance to get the whole community out and burning. First Nations is of course a very important part of that. But you know, when you're at a burn with lots of people, it's a great social occasion. You can get a barbecue going, have a chat. It's a great training opportunity for the brigades. Um, and I just love it. I mean, it's a great social day. When we did the burn for my PhD at Burge, there was probably 40 people there, young kids, you know, playing with each other and um, having fun and the adults sitting around having a chat and a coffee. And it was just great. And it's funny, isn't it? Because like where I grew up, I, I grew up in the country and that was one of the things that used to happen periodically during the year is people would have a clean up around the place and have a bonfire and it would actually be a social event. And it's sort of as like, could that be the new bonfire, <laughs> you exactly, know? Yeah, exa exactly that. I think that's a great thing. And, you know, um, fires are a great force for destruction. We know that in Victoria more than anyone. Um, but they're also a great force for good. I think if you think about you know, the spirituality of it, um, which is, might be a bit deep for, you, for your listeners, but, um, you know, fire has a great role in the spirituality of, of not just First Nations cultures, of course, but also European cultures, goddess of the hearth, goddess of healing, they were all the same thing, goddess of fire. So Bridget, goddess of fire, she was also the goddess of healing and curing, um, and I think that's kind of, you know, I feel like that's not accidental. And Joshua Hodges, who lives in regional Victoria, isn't just a fire ecologist, he's a firefighter too, a member of his local brigade, like you mentioned before. So in a way, he's personally straddling a bit of a divide, and I'm not just talking about potential politics. I'm talking about loving fire, but also fighting fire with all your might. Look, I mean, you know, fire can be very destructive. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've seen it 
hurt people and I've seen it hurt towns. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it. People know me as an ecologist, but you know, I am a firefighter as well and I like to burn because I like to protect towns and people um, just as much as I like to see the ecological benefits. Part of my experiences with fire have been negative. As a, as a, as a emergency services volunteer, you see a lot of negative aspects of, of natural disasters and fire that can be quite horrible. Um, you see some things that are quite terrifying and, and quite confronting. And um, But part of all that is, I think, if I can link this back to my PhD in, on into grasslands, is that part of the reason I'm so passionate about these ecosystems is because when something has happened, um, you know, whether it be I've been to an event and there's been a deceased person there or an injured person there, I can come out to the grasslands and sort of heal a little bit and breathe and look at these flowers and makes me feel better. I've always considered myself to be a bit of a, a natural temperate grassland species in my own right and I kind of feel at home here sitting among natural temperate grassland species so um, I certainly I mean I, I grew up in Yumurka where there's a grassland and a small while ago there was an event where I was involved and, and a person was deceased um, a person that I knew basically you know I spent a lot of time um, in grasslands afterwards sort of just healing and, and thinking and you know I find it sort of soothing sitting out here. But look, I think it's, it's probably a weird paradox thinking, well, you know, you love fire, but you've seen how destructive it is. But I love fire because I know it can prevent some of that destruction. So that's part of the reason that cool burning and cultural burning is so important is because, um, you know, there's a saying and, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a strange saying, but the only thing that can stop a bad fire is a good fire. There's lots of debate about that, of course, but of course, climate change is making things drier. So planned burning is not having a completely ubiquitous effect on fire risk, but burning off fuel reduction, burning things that people talked about a lot in 2019, 2020, so important for protecting lives and people. And I think these ecosystems are a prime candidate for it because they're so close to towns and it unites, it unites ecologists and people who are not ecologists, you know, at the end of the day, if we're doing cool burning, we're potentially uniting communities over a shared thing. And if it's the ecology that gets them to the table, great. If it's the fuel reduction that gets them to the table, great. If it's the social having a barbie, great. <laughs> like, um, but to me, the net outcome is the same. We're still burning ecosystems um, and potentially having benefits um, for people and for ecosystems, which is great. Yes. Oh, look at that. Uh, it's a uh, Eryngium, blue devil. A blue devil? Blue devil, yeah. Comes up with this blue flower. They flower very late, so you'll only see rosettes. Um, but yeah, there's a little blue flower. That's Alright, let's, uh, we've got the common everlasting this is, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> crinkly, crinkly. <laughs> I was recently at the Hildeen Fire Brigade there doing some work and um, you know there was all these species just at the brigade around the brigade and it's you know you, you wonder whether that's because they've burnt it or something but you know it's kind of amazing where they just appear sort of around people and buildings and, and structures which makes me think that humans are perhaps not the most destructive part to grasslands um, 
I think humans could perhaps be a force for good for grasslands in burning them and spreading seed. Um, it's when we um, when we treat them badly, I think, is when it starts to go wrong. Mm. And when you say treat them badly, what do you mean? Well, I think the biggest cause of destruction of these is land clearing. I think it's overdevelopment and clearing and also just abandonment. Um, if we think about fire being so important in these grasslands for recruitment, they clearly need fire. And to some extent, they'd get that naturally from grass fires, but I think they, they mostly get this from people. So you can imagine in First Nations, people burning these for food um, throughout 50,000 years, more than 50,000 years. That number's always getting revised back, so well more than 50,000 years, I would imagine. So these things have evolved with people burning them for long, long periods of time. And then you can imagine colonisation occurring, fire being largely removed from this landscape, not completely removed, I hasten to add. Um, but I think a big part of the reason these things are declining is because we've actually taken the people out of them, um, which is perhaps a bit different to what a lot of people think about nature. You think about humans being the destructive force in nature. I actually think that the humans being gone is the reason these things are declining, um, which is perhaps a bit of a paradox that a lot of people can't quite get their heads around. But I think if you see a grassland, you see it burnt and you see what comes back afterwards, you can just see how much of a positive force that is for these ecosystems. I always see beer cans in grasslands. I don't know why. People just enjoy drinking in grasslands. Yeah, you can see all those dotters. What about the carbon storage options of or not options, ability of grasslands. Is that something that's um, important? Yeah. yeah, and I think that's one of the, the great opportunities of grassland restoration is, of course, we're restoring forests because people want to store carbon, climate change. But there's a growing body of evidence, and I'm not a climate change scientist, but that suggests that grasslands are, are very important carbon sinks. So I think instead of just planting trees, we need to be planting grasses as well, <laughs> excuse me, mm. um, to restore grasslands in order to create a, a carbon sink. This whole carbon sink thing is yet another paradox in the story of our temperate grasslands in Australia. We might think of fires as being perhaps caused by climate, at the same time contributing to human-induced climate change, but in the case of this particular ecosystem, and according to Josh's work so far, by cool burning these places, encouraging them back to health, it's sort of like clearing the earth's throat so it can breathe again and cool down. Even though you've made part of your professional career really is is looking at the intricacies, the science, you know, going into like great detail and depth about these grasslands, but they haven't sort of lost that magic for you. No, definitely not. I don't think I fully appreciated the, that when I started. So I think when I started to suffer from mental health issues, depression, and I was at my lowest, um, that's when I started to realize that, okay, these are not just a scientific study for me. I am a natural temperate grassland species and I feel the best sitting out here with them. And, you know, I mean, I always enjoyed it, of course, on field trips and sitting out there sampling, but you're busy and you've got things to do. It wasn't until I finally got to come out here and take photos of plants, and anyone who's been on my social media sees lots of photos of plants, 
Um, but they also, what they don't see is me sitting out here and breathing and for hours. And I talked a little bit about the spirituality of them before, and I kind of feel this is quite yuppie. I apologise to your non non yuppie <laughs> listeners, but um, I feel a kind of a bit of a spiritual thing sitting here. And um, yeah, I think there's a there's a there's a there's a spiritual connection to grasslands that, and as scientists, perhaps we're not always susceptible to that aspect of of, of an ecosystem, but there's sort of a healing thing to being out here and and being around fire like if being around you know a healing fire i think is also very spiritual so um, that's one of the things that i love about them joshua hodges is finishing writing up his phd research now with charles sturt university and he's been very patient with me as i have misidentified nearly every single plant species i have come across I'm Ann Jones, and this is Off Track. Remember, meet me here at the same time next time, because I'm going to take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.